Hey Nick. Hey Liam. What do you call a fly with the flu? I don't know. What do you call a fly with the flu? A horse fly. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Hello everyone. This is Entocast, an insect podcast. Which is kindly sponsored by the Royal Entomological Society. We're your hosts. I'm Nick and I'm joined by my co-host Liam. Hey. And today we're going to find out a little bit more about Liam's research. With an episode aptly titled Bugs, Bees, Carbon and Trees. So Liam, could you tell me what exactly it is you're doing for your PhD? So I started my PhD in September. And it's with the new Birmingham Institute for Forest Research, BIFOR. And it's based at the BIFOR FACE experiment, which is a woodland in Staffordshire where we're elevating the atmospheric carbon dioxide and we're measuring how the ecosystem responds to this increase. And my background is in entomology, funnily enough. Uh, I did a Surprising. MS- yeah. <laughs> I did an MSc in entomology. And... Um, my project is looking at how specifically the insects are going to respond to this change in carbon dioxide. So before we dig into the science too much, why did you choose this for your PhD? There's a lot of different bits of entomology out there. Why is this interesting? I looked at all sorts of different things when I I wanted to do a PhD and and I I saw this one and I've always found forest ecosystems really interesting because they're so so much in there, so diverse. And um, I've also recently found climate change quite interesting and seeing how insects are going to at the community level adapt and respond to climate change so you know this opportunity where we're looking at both those things together just looked like a really interesting avenue you were working at the birmingham institute for forestry research you said could you tell us briefly what that is the main aim of the institute is looking at how changing climate is going to affect woodlands and it's also looking at how pests and diseases may affect individual trees and uh, one of the main components of this at the moment is the kind of crown jewel of, of the Institute is the new FACE facility. It stands for Free Air Carbon Dioxide Enrichment. And this is where out in an ecosystem, we elevate the levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide in the air. And then we can measure how that ecosystem responds in real time. What's the point? What's the purpose of this? Why is this important? Anthropogenic activity has led to an increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And this is things like burning of fossil fuels and deforestation. And we know that this is increasing and we know that this is going to continue to increase over the next 50, 100, 200 years. What we don't know is what impact this is going to have on the ecosystems around us, particularly how plants will react. Now, carbon dioxide is one of the primary chemicals involved in the most widespread chemical reaction on Earth, which is photosynthesis. And this chemical reaction is the basis for all terrestrial life, essentially. Um, So more carbon dioxide can actually lead to an increase in photosynthesis in the plants, which could be a good thing. But carbon dioxide is not the whole story. There's other things at play here, like nutrients, water, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the plants themselves, which species are growing where. I was going to say as well, where do insects come into this? So it's obviously carbon dioxide is going to have a big impact on the plants, but where do the insects come in? Plants pretty much govern everything in the ecosystem. And then, so the insects, a lot of them have very close interactions with specific plants. So any changes to the plants have these kind of knock-on effects which affect the insects. 
and it may affect like a herbivorous insect but then any changes to the population in that or even just the individual uh, performance of insects will then have impact for the insects which are predating on those or the parasitoids which come on and it just you get this trophic cascade where the subtle changes at the plant level can then be amplified throughout the whole ecosystem we know that everywhere on earth insects are the primary drivers in an ecosystem because there's so many of them and and without them all these ecosystem processes just fall down and cease to happen insects underpin everything i mean there's a lovely famous quote saying if insects disappeared then we wouldn't be able to survive without them whereas if we disappeared you know insects would be absolutely fine they might be better off in fact (laughs) many of them would be yeah What exactly is the focus of your research specifically? So insects are obviously important to this uh, system, but what are you focusing on? So I want to see how after we've added this carbon dioxide into this system, how the community of insects changes in response to that. So I'm looking for changes in the diversity of what we might find there, or even just how many we find there, Um, which will start to tell us about how the system overall is changing. But then I also want to kind of delve down in a more focused way and see how certain insect-plant interactions are being affected by this carbon dioxide. And one of the key interactions, as I've mentioned already, is herbivory. I mean, out in a woodland, there's a huge, huge level of herbivory on on the trees, but also on all the other plants there. But um, even things like, you know, an oak tree, being a deciduous tree has a leaf flush in the spring where, you know, the buds come out and then they go into leaf and it starts photosynthesizing for the summer. But it's quite normal for oak trees in the summer to then have a kind of secondary flush. And this is purely, we think, in response to the herbivory, because if it didn't have this capacity to put out some new leaves, all the original leaves would have been eaten so much that it wouldn't be able to photosynthesize for the second half of the season. Insects are hugely important for nutrient cycling. And I think sometimes it's probably fair to say that they're a little bit overlooked. And when you talk about nutrient cycling, we usually think about plants and microbes. But Insects are are huge herbivores on plants and like going back to the oak tree, I mean, they can do huge amounts of feeding on this oak tree and all the nutrients which were then in that plant are going into the insect and through the insect and then some of those nutrients are going to come out the insect. Um, So insect poo, um, we usually call frass, so something like a caterpillar. As it's chewing along, it exudes this frass which will fall down to the forest floor and then was broken down and goes back into the soil. So insects can really join up these two parts of the nutrient cycles and uh, some of the nutrients which i find really interesting are um, carbon and nitrogen Mm. so the whole experiment is all about carbon it's about whether increased photosynthesis is gonna absorb more carbon dioxide and this feeds into you know global issues of climate change Um, but from the insect herbivore point of view what they're after they're after nitrogen so something like an aphid which is feeds on the phloem of the plant and it's just going to feed and feed and feed accumulate as much nitrogen as it can but there's far more carbon based compounds coming out so things like sugars and the aphid doesn't need so many of these so actually most of those end up coming straight out the other end of the aphid as honeydew and right, if you've ever okay. parked your car under a tree in spring or summer and you come back and there's all that sticky residue all over your car mm. Well, that's what that is. That's honeydew that's come off the aphids feeding up in the tree. And I, you know, I've been a victim of that a number of times. And it's really difficult. You have to really scrub it to get it off. It's a great <laughs> pain.
The increased carbon dioxide, is that going to... You're talking about the carbon... Yeah. There's more carbon compounds. Are there going to be increased amount of carbon compounds? Is this going to shift the ratio between so, carbon and nitrogen having the increased carbon dioxide? Yeah, previous research on this has shown that um, the extra carbon dioxide does change the carbon-nitrogen ratio in plants. It increases the ratio, so there's more carbon per nitrogen. So something like an aphid, which is after the nitrogen, is going to have to feed even more to get hold of the same amount of nitrogen... And then, so in theory, more carbon should be coming out the other end, which is then going to go back into the soil. So it's going to change the dynamics of this cycle. There's two ways that the insects can deal with these change in plant chemistry. Because generally, when the nitrogen goes down, that's bad news for them. It's decreased the palatability of the plant. Right. And so the one thing they could do is just be a bit worse off. So they grow a bit slower. They don't get so, so big. Their pupil mass might be less. They might just not make it through their life cycle. They might just kind of die of malnutrition, <laughs> which is a little bit sad. That is one way to adapt, <laughs> just die. <laughs> or the other thing they could do is what's known as compensatory feeding, where they increase their feeding rate. So this is something which we've seen in aphids, where they're, when we've done experiments where we've elevated carbon dioxide, the aphids have um, been feeding more. And in some instances, the aphids actually start doing better and the population starts to increase. In other instances, on different species, uh, the aphids actually start doing worse. And one of the really interesting things I saw about like why this might be is because um, one of the major things controlling aphid populations are the predators and parasitoids. And some of the parasitoids, which are little wasps which lay their eggs straight into these aphids, a lot of those find the aphids by detecting the honeydew. And so if they're feeding more and producing more honeydew, that could make them more visible to these little wasps. So this is something that's really cool that I really, if I have time, I'd really like to kind of investigate that out in the field and see if I can see this happening in, in our system. That'd be really interesting. For people who aren't quite familiar, how are you actually, I mean, it's not you personally, but how are you elevating the CO2 in this system? Yeah, so it's this really cool, high-tech facility i mean i I heard it described as a sci-fi woodland (laughs) essentially we've got these um these huge towers which are built in a ring and then carbon dioxide is stored on site in in liquid form in these huge tanks through some complex engineering which i don't really understand Uh, i'm not an engineer but it's the carbon dioxide is pumped out to these towers and lots of sensors all through the array and they detect all these um minute climatic conditions so it knows exactly how much carbon dioxide is there and it knows when it wants to add more and it also knows which way the wind is blowing and depending on which way the wind is coming from it opens up valves on the towers on that side of the ring so then carbon dioxide starts to come out of the pipes there and the wind then disperses that across the ring and why do you use the wind to disperse it why would it not be better just to pump it exactly where you need it to be? Well, if you don't take into account of the wind, you could be pumping in loads and loads of carbon dioxide and then it's just moving straight out of the ring again. So we want to try and keep it in the ring as much as possible. And we want the centre of the ring to be within our target value of what we're trying to elevate it to right. most of the time. And what is your target? What are you trying to elevate it to? It's based on what we expect the climate to be in about 50 years' time, the concentration of atmospheric carbon dioxide, um, which is about 150 parts per million above what it 
ambient is today. So ambient at the wow. moment is about 400 parts per billion, which is already much higher than when records began. When we started recording the concentrations of carbon dioxide, it was somewhere around 350, so it's already increased. But at the BIFOR facility, this isn't the set value that we're trying to achieve. What it's actually doing is measuring in real time the ambient conditions in the control arrays and then elevating it in the treatment arrays by 150 above what we've measured at the same time. Just from a sort of practical standpoint, how big are these rings? Yeah, they're quite substantial. They're actually 30 metres in diameter. Whoa. So there's um, a good number of trees in each ring. And then across our site, we have six infrastructure rings. So we have three rings, which are our treatment rings, where we are increasing the carbon dioxide. But then we also have the three control rings, where we have all the infrastructure in place, but we're just pumping out ambient air just to control for the, you know, the effects of actually pumping out something and having all this infrastructure in place. And then we also have a further free ghost arrays where we have no infrastructure and we're just measuring the woodland as is. We talked a little bit uh, about uh, there might be potential shifts and things, but what predictions do you have about this experiment? What have other uh, similar experiments found? So we found that the effects on insects quite often tend to be quite specific to what kind of insect it is, which kind of makes sense. So you can't have one rule that says all aphids will do better or all caterpillars will do worse. What we found is it depends on their life cycle and what they're feeding on. And obviously, you know, if one species of plant has one change, then the insects associated with that will change similarly. But that could be completely different to another species. And even things like feeding guild. So feeding guild is the, the way insects feed. So um, the flow and feed of the aphids, which we talked about before, that would be one feeding guild. Uh, an alternative feeding guild would be leaf chewers. So this would be your kind of standard caterpillars. Many moth larvae will just be up there munching, eating the whole leaf. So other face experiments have found that these different feeding guilds actually do respond uh, in completely different ways. So we have to try and be careful because it's not plausible for me to go out and sample every single insect in that system. It's just too many and <laughs> I've got enough time. It'd be great if we could, but you know. Yeah, though it might be a little bit of an undertaking. Um, so I just want to try and see how some of these key players in the nutrient cycling are going to change. And uh, what I'd like to do is take some of these and then back in the lab here at Birmingham, grow them in much more controlled conditions and try and get down into the mechanisms, you know, working out why we're seeing these changes in the field. This is obviously a, a massive system and there's lots of different things to... Really, I'm just trying to get my head around how you're actually going to do it because there's that many insects, uh, there's that many different interactions, there's... This is a whole ecosystem, and you're changing the carbon dioxide, which is obviously a massive impact on that system. So how are you going to do it, essentially? I can't get this complete picture, but I could, if I sample in the right kind of way, so I want a, quite a broad sampling regime where I'm covering different areas, for example, covering the forest floor and covering the canopy. But it also has to be representative and... Some of these changes, because this is a mature system, uh, some of these changes might not be massive, like we've seen in previous experiments. Um, because you think about an oak tree, which is the 
primary dominant uh, tree in this system. Um, they've got lifespans looking at you know hundreds of years. It might not respond to something over the short term in the same way that a young fast-growing species might because it can kind of just oh the carbon's a bit weird but i'll just take it in my stride and see what it's like next year before i start dramatically changing my chemistry i mean not that trees think like that (laughs) (laughs) to try and capture these complex things it's all about having this sampling program which is taking us a subsample of what's there in a meaningful way where we can then interpret that data are you intimidated at all it sounds like quite an undertaking yeah i guess um but i think more than that i'm excited and i'm also excited for the potential of collaborations you know getting other projects in whether these are from undergraduate level through to postdoc level you know there's all sorts of different people coming in bringing their own suites of skills and their own angle and even you know other entomologists coming in which is absolutely fantastic <laughs> i mean what's what do entomologists like more than talking entomology with other entomologists? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that's hopefully why you're listening to the podcast. <laughs> Sponsored by the Royal Entomological Society. Um, <laughs> where entomologists talk to entomologists about entomology. How many times can you say entomology before it starts to lose all meaning? <laughs> I think I'm about at that limit. So it, is, it sounds really in- incredible. It's obviously very important because we're changing the world, we're changing the atmosphere, there's a lot more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But often we sort of see this as a negative thing that is occurring. But is there the possibility uh, that this enhanced CO2 could be beneficial for plants and the insects involved? Well, there's definitely a possibility. Um, the thing is, we don't really know. And really? that's the kind of the point of the experiment. Is because it hasn't been done before. Um, studies have looked at in a more simple way on maybe a smaller system or in a more controlled system in the lab, but that can only ever tell us so much. And what's actually going on outside in the real world, we're trying to get to that by taking the experiment outside and into this open system where the carbon dioxide can move off like it would naturally. Mm-hmm. And you are getting these fluxes and you have got several different plant species all competing and growing in you know real world and that's where it's interesting to see um, whether there's these changes. Yeah, I mean, I I almost just want all of your data now because it just sounds so <laughs> it just sounds so interesting what you might find about it. But all everyone says to me when I ask about bifolds, we don't know, which is great because that's what science is. But at the same time, I want to know. <laughs> yeah, it's scaring, exciting, and equal measures. Um, so another thing I was wondering is. Face experiments, uh, the enhanced CO2 experiments, have been criticised in the past um, because they've only increased CO2 at certain times because it's very, very expensive to do so. Um, How would you respond to this? Are fluctuations in CO2 going to be a problem? Is this something that BIFOR will encounter? So CO2 does flux a lot naturally. Um, and one of the good examples of this is from daytime to nighttime. So there is the argument that in the way there's no point us enriching the environment at this time. Uh, and also through the winter, I mean, within the actual site itself, all the trees are deciduous. So, yep, they're all going to drop their leaves and they're not going to be photosynthesizing. Mm-hmm. And many of the smaller plants in the field layer, they all die back in the winter. 
you know you can only see a few things like a few brambles and stuff but lots of the other plants are just dormant throughout the winter so you don't have this photosynthesis at the same time i mean in an ideal world it would be lovely to have the co2 treatment all the time because in the future climate the co2 is going to be higher all the time even though it's going to fluctuate loads it's going to generally be higher so it's difficult but logistically it's it's just not viable for us to treat all the time well it all sounds uh, very interesting like i said and i think you've given us a good flavor of it but we're also now going to go chat to uh, professor john sadler who's one of your supervisors uh, to get another perspective on your research and bifo itself Brilliant. Talk to someone who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> That's the idea. <laughs> Through the magic of editing, we're actually joined by Professor John Sadler immediately. Like I said, John is part of the team at Bifor and he's also one of Liam's supervisors, so he can give us another perspective on Liam's research. Hi, John. Thanks again for agreeing to come on to Entocast today to talk to us about Bifor. So you're over here in geography department. I was wondering if you could maybe tell us uh, about how and why you're interested in insects and how this relates to what's going on at Bifor. Okay, so um, I, I trained both as geographer as a bio- and a biologist, um, and that drew push forward from childhood interest in natural history, and in particular um, collecting bugs. The beetles were my favourites as a as a kid. Um, um, laterally moved through hoverflies and into wider r- runs of pollinators, including solitary bees, which I'm fascinated by. Um, and professionally, I've tracked that through a run of projects looking at urban pollinators, uh, but also some work looking at uh, saprozoic insects, deadwood insects, including some interesting work looking at uh, one particular insect, the noble chafer, which is tied to ancient orchids, uh, which was a leaving project we've just wound up, which was fascinating, trying to understand its life cycle in relation to how people manage uh, old and ancient uh, orchids out in the Vale of Evesham. Um, so that kind of translated into uh, my interest in Bifor, which picked up some of these uh, themes, saprozoic insects and pollinators, um, and Bifor is a, an ideal opportunity to try and understand how a major global change might actually push uh, those insects groups and, and tug them into different uh, configurations. So what is your role and your research interest then at Bifor? Well, I'm part of the scientific team at Bifor. Um, I, my particular uh, role is to consider the invertebrate diversity, which is, uh, you know, maps nicely onto my um, research interests. Uh, but also I've got a kind of sideline thinking a little bit about how we can use remote sense technology to understand uh, canopy variability in perhaps uh, leaf condition, uh, but also a spatial variability in terms of the form of the canopy. Um, we can do that using new uh, satellite data that's available, the new um, European Science Foundation satellites, Centennial satellites capture data at quite low spatial resolutions now with all the right sensors near infrared to allow us to understand uh, vegetation health uh, but I think we'll get better data by utilizing the advances that we've got in uh, unmanned aerial vehicles drones which we can get up now and capture data at centimeter resolution we can even pick out individual leaves with our flights across the canopy which will give us some fantastic data sets to try and understand canopy health but also um, assess uh, the phenology of the system 
one of the things I was trying to allude to earlier is why is this important research? I wondered if you had any perspectives on, on why this is important and why we should be doing this. Two obvious ones. I mean, firstly, this work in a very complex ecosystem with a second generation face system has not been done before. So it is the most complex ecosystem that a face experimentation uh, has tried to examine, which is great. Um, but also, you know, deciduous forests are our most complicated ecosystems in the UK and probably across you know, northern and central Europe. Um, and in these times of global change, it, it's important we understand how uh, increased CO2 and increased temperature may have an influence on, on system complexity. Um, and we know an awful lot of theoretical ecology uh, has developed these ideas of state changes, quite abrupt shifts in ecosystems when uh, pushed under quite extreme um, environmental change scenarios. So this is a, an opportunity to try and look at the resilience within the system to a very large increase in CO2. So do you have any predictions about what you'll see from this? Or is it just such a complex system that it's a complete unknown? I, I, well, we've got we've got some sense of how uh, young trees will deal with increased carbon. They basically utilise it and put it into growth. But what we're not sure is what's going to happen to the more mature trees in the system. Are they going to respond in the same way, um, or are they going to put on biomass, or what are they going to do with that with that carbon? So there are some real unknowns here in the system. We don't have any sense, as far as I can see from the literature, how a mature system is going to respond to that level of push. So there could be some big surprises waiting for us, or there could just be some predictable outcomes. But part of the excitement in this is we don't actually know. Absolutely. I mean, personally, this uncertainty is one of the reasons why this project was so exciting to me. It's a huge opportunity. Um, and I'm really excited at the prospect of watching what's coming through as the data starts to you know, get collected. We've been live what, a few weeks now in terms of the experimentation itself, so the data is starting to come in. How do you see this experiment evolving in the long term? This is a 10-year experiment, correct? Okay, so um, by Forest it was initially created as a wider remit than just a face experiment. The face experiment is clearly central to Bifor and it's been underpinned by a significant capital contribution by the donor who who owns the site. Um, and obviously that that's a key a key element of of the institute's work. But I think the institute is is much broader than that. It looks at woodlands in a much broader contextual sense. There'll be links looking at urban woodlands, which is something I'm interested in, the urban forest and the health of trees within urban systems and what they um, provide in terms of ecological services for people in cities. Um, we've got uh, themes looking at the, the social interaction of people with woodlands. Um, and our perspective will be much more global than just focused on the one site out at uh, Bifor, the experimental site. So are these various different areas of research beyond just the FACE facility where you see the Institute going after the initial 10-year period? I, well, I mean, I would rather hope that we, we can create a, a sustainable system where that the FACE experimentation can, can be continued um, on a longer scale because, you know, ecosystems, um, particularly woodland ecosystems, they've taken a very long time to get to be mature systems, many, many hundreds of years. So... I think we do need to work towards a sustainable 
run of uh, finance that helps us push past that 10-year endpoint. All the other stuff, I think, is crucially important. Uh, we could take the outcomes of our enhanced understanding of uh, CO2 response in these systems and start thinking about how we can interact and interact uh, those into global um, vegetation models, you know, thinking about things like tree mortality, tree growth, turnover of trees, that kind of stuff. Um, so I think the global impact of that experimental site could be much broader. So those are the themes I expect to grow and run in parallel with FACE. And we hope to keep FACE going. And what are the biggest challenges you see with FACE? Well, I mean, the biggest challenge is, is that sustainability gap at the end. You know, when when the capital runs out, we, we've got to generate sufficient um resource to keep the thing running that that's a challenge let's let's not pretend it isn't um infrastructurally complex equipment it, it's top grade research equipment that we've got so it's high quality but you know it's an infrastructural project and you don't know what's going to happen in the natural world when you've got field experiments out there so you know we're, we're ready for those kind of eventualities tree fall that kind of stuff um we do with you know fantastic uh, health and safety on site fantastic uh, thoughts about cleanliness not taking pathogens in not bringing them off so we've done all the right things to capture as many of the natural risks we're likely to encounter um, I guess in terms of the science what we're doing is generating a vast amount of data um, you could view having a lot of data as a problem but actually it's a real opportunity to, inter to interrogate those data sets uh, from Liam's perspective, clearly he's going to be catching a great deal of invertebrates and there's only so many of these that can be identified in the course of a PhD. So we'll be setting aside insect groups that we're perhaps not interested in right now and maybe we'll pick those up in subsequent projects. So we'll manage the risks of not utilising the data by thinking about where we go next with the research, following on from what's essentially Liam's pioneering piece of work. So you've touched on it a little bit there, but obviously this is a big and complicated system with a lot of factors and a lot of data coming in. So how can you be sure that what you're seeing is just down to the increased CO2? Okay, so the experimental phase system was set up in the most careful way we could. So the individual location of every ring was carefully considered. Um, the location of the controls versus the inoculated uh, rings was carefully considered. Given the configuration of the woodland, the rings are in the optimal positions. We've got inoculated rings, we've got control rings with infrastructure, and we've got ghost rings with no infrastructure. So we've got a, a decent before-after control type experiment set up with as many degrees of freedom as we can squeeze into the site. So it's as robust as robust experimental as it possibly can be. So if we see a response, um, it's highly likely to be down to the inoculation. So clearly this is an enormous project, an enormous undertaking. So where did you acquire funding for this? So uh, we were approached by a donor who's a former alumni of the University of Birmingham who uh, has uh, underpinned the infrastructural investment on a piece of land that he owns adjacent to where he lives uh, with £15 million donation, which the university is matching in kind with staffing, which will grow uh, the pool of uh, forest experts that the university has to create the institute. So we're matching it with staff, really, and staff time. Um, it was a very generous gift, and uh, we're excited to be involved in a project of this scale and ambition. 
Do you have any idea what his motivation was behind this gift? He's got a fascination with woodlands and, and trees, actually. Uh, he's a former medic. Uh, he, was a, he, he was a university uh, medical researcher. Um, I don't know where his interest came from, but all I know, he's, he's had an interest in woodlands and he's been planting up his own estate out in Staffordshire uh, with lots of different tree species. And uh, he, he, I don't know whether he dreamt the idea up in association with Rob McKenzie or he just had an idea he wanted to do something with the University of Birmingham and the idea arose out of that wanting to work with uh, the institution of which he used to work. Well, it all sounds incredible and I can't wait to start seeing some data and results coming out of it. Yeah, me too. So that was uh, Professor John Sadler giving his uh, take on the exciting Bifo experiment. And I didn't actually know that much about my co-host research. He's told me about it, he talks about, to me about it all the time. But you know sometimes where you don't listen. <laughs> well, it's not that you don't listen, <laughs> but it's like you don't necessarily quite understand the scale of it. But asking you these like formalized questions rather than just chatting to you about it has given me a much better uh, flavor, I think. Uh, It sounds really, really interesting, this research. And I'm glad that you've been able to talk a little bit about it. And obviously now our listeners know a bit more about one of us, at least, because I am still an enigma. It was good to talk about it from my point of view as well. You know, I like always like talking about my work and trying to get people as excited about it as I am. <laughs> well, I think you've done that in spades. Uh, you also, uh, of interest to our listeners, you're going to be writing an antenna article. Is that right? Yeah. So um, just a, a short article covering a lot of the stuff we've talked about today, just kind of introducing this uh, new Birmingham Institute for Forest Research and this sci-fi forests base facility and some of the stuff that I'm doing there on the insects and so that should hopefully be coming out in Antenna, the Royal Entomological Society magazine uh, later this year. Okay and if anyone's interested in Bifor's research is there anything they can follow to keep up to date with them? Yeah so um, Bifor has a fantastic website, Uh, the link to that I'll put in the show notes Um, and there's also a newsletter from Bifor that you can sign up to. And they have a Twitter, I believe, as well. I think it's at by 4 uab Thanks again for talking to us about your research. Uh, next time, we're going to be talking to our mutual supervisor, Scott Hayward, about winter and insects. Thanks again for listening. This has been Entercast. I've been Nick. And I've been Liam. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Ta-ra. <laughs> Buzz off. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we know that um, environmental carbon dioxide atmospheric... So we know that atmospheric levels... (laughs) <laughs> climate change <laughs> yeah. so anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic activity is leading to an increase in carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere and this is things like uh, burning of fossil fruit fuels and um, 
deforestation. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say anything right now. <laughs> it's tricky. I know this is this is what your PhD is. So you know you can't be expected to know too much about it. So anthropogenic or anthrop- anthropomorphic? So human activity is. Meant- <laughs> <laughs> 